make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing, it seemed, in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. And welcome. I'm Kaya Alexander. I'm your host, and I'm here today with our brilliant special guest, Karen Shaler. Let me tell you about Karen. You're going to love her. She is a three time Emmy award winning screenwriter, best selling author, and national TV correspondent. She's written beloved Christmas movies for Netflix, Hallmark, and Lifetime, including the Netflix sensation A Christmas Prince that started the franchise. Hallmark's Christmas Camp, and Lifetime's Every Day is Christmas, and Rediscovering Christmas. She, you Now you know why she's called Christmas Karen. <laughs> she also wrote a full cast top 10 Audible bestseller, Once Upon a Christmas Carol, where she's also written the feature script. The creator and host of Christmas Camp and Travel Therapy TV, Karen has traveled to more than 68 countries and says globetrotting inspires all her stories. Her Hallmark Christmas Camp movie and books prompted her to create real-life Christmas camp experiences at resorts and hotels and destinations worldwide. And just released last month is Karen's seventh best-selling holiday rom-com novel, Every Day is Christmas, which I'm holding from here. It's such a beautiful book. Written during the WGA strike and inspired by her Lifetime Christmas movie starring multi-Grammy winner Tony Braxton. Karen has gifts for our listeners today, so you should definitely go grab your gifts. I'm going to let her say hi to you and tell you what the gifts are, and you can get those at karenshaler.com, and her last name is S-C-H-A-L-E-R.com. Karen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. And of course I have gifts. I have to live up to my Christmas Karen name. (laughs) She has gifts for you. I love it. Well, what I put together, and thank you, Kaya, first of all, for having me here. I love your podcast. I learn from your podcast. I look forward to it. And I just feel like every time I listen, I not only learn, but I get inspired. So I really want to thank you for taking the time and curating such amazing people. And I'm truly honored to be one of your guests today. And so, of course, for your listeners, we had to put together a special gift. We have a couple because it's the holiday season. So when you go to my website, karenshaler.com, and you'll see, you can scroll down and see the movies and see movie clips, and you'll see the books, and you'll see a big red banner that says free gift. And what I did is my Christmas Camp Hallmark movie was all about going someplace to relax and de-stress before the holiday with all these activities and 
you know, kind of defines your true Christmas spirit. And because I do them at resorts, when the pandemic hit, we had to put a pause and I'd started creating DIY Christmas camps that you could do at home. So what I'm giving out is a Christmas camp DIY guide that you can download immediately. It's completely free. And it includes all these recipes, my Christmas camp cocktail that you definitely want for the season. And it has so many fun activities you can do with your family. And every year I add to it because as I do additional Christmas movies and books, it gets bigger and bigger. And for those of you that love books, because who doesn't love a good cozy book with your hot cocoa at Christmas time? I just put my new book from last year called Love Always Christmas. It was a number one bestseller on Amazon and Barnes and Noble into Kindle Unlimited which means it's absolutely free also to download. There's two other books I have in Kindle Unlimited, and we're going to give a link in the show notes so you can you know, easily remember all of that. And I give some of my friends that write the same kind of, if you love those cozy, smart, romantic comedies, it's in that vein. And that way you can get a bunch of free books. And if you're saying, Karen, I don't have Kindle Unlimited, I hear you. So everyone discounted their books at least 50%. So at least you're going to get a smoking deal if you don't have Kindle Unlimited. So I'm always giving away things and that's a great way to start because now I miss just in the Christmas spirit. Thank you, Kaya. <laughs> Christmas spirit, you always uplift me and make me remember like how much I love Christmas and especially as a kid and I have an 11 year old and it just brings us to that cozy, joyful place of uh, maybe the best of our humanity Christmas. So I'm so happy that you're a guest on the show. Your background is surprising. I remember the first time that I met you, you're so bubbly and joyful and bringing all of this Christmas spirit forward. And then you're like, oh, I was a war correspondent. And I was like, what? How did you get from this broadcast television life in the field, you've been out with people deployed in right Afghanistan, if I remember you telling right. me. Right. And now, and now Christmas spirit, Karen, tell me about that arc for you. Oh, you know, it's, it's been a crazy journey. And I say from the beginning, like so many of the people you've had on the podcast and the creatives that you listen to as a writer, I think we're storytellers. We come out of, you know, the womb that way. You know, it's what my mom said. What were her first words? And my mom said, what was her first story? You mean, because I would make up stories about people when I was two and three years old about my stuffed animals. You know, I would create these imaginary worlds. And so I always was a storyteller. And I originally ironically wanted to be an author because my whole family reads books. They had their nose in a book. And I thought, if I'm going to get any attention, I better, you know, be an author. Maybe that's a way to do it. But it dates me horribly. But I remember one of my first creative writing classes, and I think it was even junior high. And I got an A for creativity and story and characters. But I got a D because I left out four commas and my grammar wasn't, you know, those commas were important. And I know how important they are. If you know me, I don't speak in commas. I don't pause to breathe. And I certainly don't write in them. And so I was very disenchanted as a child going, well, this just sucks, you know, so I'm going to do something where I can tell a story. And sure enough, I'm watching TV news. And so the irony is I am a very upbeat glass is not only half full, it's overflowing. Even in the hardest times, I try to turn adversity into fuel. Um, it's just who I am. But in TV news, as a reporter, the more ambitious you are and the quote, better you are, you get higher up in the newscast. You're the featured one, right? So that first reporter and that first story, 
I was an athlete. I'm also very competitive. So I always wanted to be the first story, you know? So I go in all these TV markets and I start off as a TV journalist. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I actually wanted to be a National Geographic photo journalist until I saw, not it wasn't difficult, but I thought, oh yeah, I'm still going to have to write and they're still going to nick me for not perfect grammar. So, okay, I'll go be a TV correspondent. A war correspondent is what I really wanted. And I wanted to be in cultures and tell stories about people who couldn't tell their own stories. That was my goal. Even from the time I was 11, I picked my college. I mean, I was pretty driven. And that was the, you know, the game plan and the whole thing. So I I did my small market TV like you do. But guess what? The old days, they say if it leads, it bleeds. Meaning if it's the first story, it's usually crime, corruption. One of those stories you don't want to hear. So for my entire career... Until I transitioned, you know, a few years ago into doing what I'm doing now, writing these beautiful Christmas movies and rom-coms and, you know, things like that. I was a crime reporter. I was an investigative reporter. I've been on, you know, death row covering, you know, the most horrendous murders. And, you know, I've been behind the scenes. I worked with Interpol. I actually went through a CIA training program. I mean, I hung with police officers. I mean, that was my jam, you know, and my job every day, no matter what TV market I was in, was to work my sources and find out what the worst story was. And it literally, I'd be like, what about this? Not bad enough. What's worse? And I had to find the corruption, the crime, the something that was going wrong with humanity. And I remember, I don't know, it was five, six years in, I'm, you know, I never could smile, very serious. And people would meet me in public. And it's just exactly what you said, Kaya. They're like, oh my gosh, you're nothing like you are on television. And I said, well, I can't exactly dance around and smile when I'm talking about, you know, atrocities to humanity. And I had a real drive as much as I joke about that. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to give a voice to people that didn't have a voice from a very, very young age. And so a storyteller, you know, I have been, I worked my way up and it of course, you don't start off as a war correspondent. You start off in, you know, Billings, Montana, covering the local fair with a cow mooing behind you, which actually does happen. I had to kiss a cow. Um, yeah, there was a whole kiss a cow because people voted on who in the community would kiss a cow. And yeah, I had to kiss a cow in front of, you know, 60,000 people at a fairground. So no, I did not get to start off as my war correspondent, um, but I worked my way up. And at one point, I was covering a lot of illegal immigration along the southern border when I was in Arizona and Texas. And that got the attention of Lou Dobbs at the time, who was the powerhouse at CNN. And he asked me to be his White House correspondent. And I remember when I interviewed with him, I didn't want to move to New York. Um, I was going to try, I was trying to have a quality of life. I had moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, where I could golf. You know, I'd, I'd been in all these, you know, bigger markets. And I remember going out to New York because my friend had just got a job there in CBS. And I thought, well, at least I can see her. So I took the interview, met Lou. And I remember after being just like I am now, talking a mile a minute, you know, being, I'm pretty, I'm 100% authentic. I'm like, like it or leave it. Uh, he said, do you have any questions for me? Of course I did. And then I said, you know, I said, yeah, I have a question for you. Why me? You know, why are you picking me? You know, why did I get the call up from the minors to the majors and the television world? And he said, well, you're not the prettiest. You don't have the best voice. You're not the best writer, but I've never met anybody more tenacious than you. And I've never met anybody that cares more. That's what I want on my team. And so I was kind of, it was like that double-edged compliment. You're like, so I'm ugly. I'm like, I'm ugly. My voice sucks. No, but you know what I mean? I'm I'm laughing at it. Um, So I did that. It was a temporary gig to fill in for somebody. So I was a White House correspondent. And then he said, the last thing he said is I was wearing a hot pink suit. And it was cute, I have to say. I never wore nylons in Washington, D.C. Everybody else did. And I came, 
Yeah. And I have blonde hair, you know, I'm, I'm blonde hair, blue eyed. And I guess my name's Karen, but no, I'm a good Karen, but I do look like, you know, that, you know, I'm blonde, fair, you know, privileged, of course, being a white woman. So I remember he said, and they'll never see you coming because I'm so chatty. I'm so friendly. People underestimate me my whole life. It's been my secret weapon. It's how I get cops to talk to me. It's how I go to be undercover. It's how I get humans to talk to me about their saddest times because I'm real and that was it. So I finally got to go. I was the first journalist embedded um, with troops in Bosnia. President Clinton said, we're sending in troops. I was in Salt Lake City, Utah at NBC affiliate. I found a local uh, unit and that was going to be the very first in country. And, you know, some would say I schmooze. I'd like to say I work my ass off, you know, to get the opportunity. My TV station said, I'm not sending you. If I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send a guy. You don't know anything. You know, I'm going to send my reporter that was in Vietnam. You're young. You're no, no, and no. And I said, well, no one else has my access. Then I'll quit and take it to the competition. And so, you know, he's like, no, you won't. And so I called the competition and the competition, yeah, we'll hire. We want the story. And so they let me go under duress. <laughs> and I went for a month. I took the photographer that was crazy enough to go with me to Bosnia. And we were embedded with the army. And we were, we thought it would be, I remember the army said, we'll be safe. We're going to be based, you know, in Tuzla and they're public affairs army reservists. So they're regular folks like you and me that are reservists. We're just going to be doing like media, like you do in our little safe area. But as soon as they got there, they got deployed to cover tanker troops out, you know, in some of the most difficult areas. So then fast forward. And the next thing that I did, um, I always, you know, again, wanted to do continue to do more. And I found, you know, years later, you know, sadly, uh, dealing with what was going on with Afghanistan. But I was the first journalist um, in the world embedded with an Apache helicopter unit in Afghanistan on three different um, bases around Afghanistan. So that was 2007. And after that, I got back and I did documentaries. I produced, executive produced and wrote because it could just be me and a photographer. So I set everything up. I was my own producer, um, did, at, sat with editing and my photographer. It was pretty rough both times, but Afghanistan was hard. There was a bombing. President Cheney came and they were trying to get him. And there were 25 people killed very close to where I was doing a live shot for my TV station. And I didn't know if my photographer was okay. We were in bunkers. The bunkers, to, to describe it for you, if you've ever seen those big pipes alongside the freeway, they're just kind of a big open pipe. And that's what it was. It was this piece of cement that was like a half pipe. And there was a bunch of the sandbags over it, but it wasn't closed. Nice. So you're in there kind of hunched over and people are running by and there's smoke and, you know, it's, it's mayhem. And I remember it kept going over this announcement. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. There's been a mass casualty, mass attack. And it was one of the few times I wasn't in my full black gear because people there didn't wear it. It was a base that wasn't on, you know, a, you know, front line type situation because the Apaches obviously fly to those areas. To, you you want to, you always want to be where the planes are because that's where it's safe because they're not going to get something left if they can, something happened to those million dollar planes. So, you know, people would walk around and they weren't in their full gear all the time, you know? And so it was rough. And when I was inside there, a lot of the soldiers they said, if we get out alive, they were talking what they would do. And I speak about this. Um, I've been asked to do some public speaking, and I call it the someday trips. And they all, they didn't talk about, it was interesting, saying something or doing something. They all talked about a trip they would take. I'm going to take my kid to Disneyland. I'm going to take my wife on that honeymoon. And it was experiences. And I had used my whole life, travel as my therapy. And so when I got out of Afghanistan, I did my documentary. There was a big management shift at the TV station. I was scheduled to go back in country, back to Afghanistan. I was very excited about that. But my new management thought it was too dangerous and cut it. 
And I don't do well with that type of thing because, you know, I wanted to go back to my soldiers. I also had a little bit of PTSD because I'd left my soldiers. I I was going to go back. I was part of this unit, you know, you really bond, you know, with them. And I felt like I was abandoning them. And I said, if I can't cover the war, I'm going to go cover spas. You know, I'm going to go do something else. And if I remember that moment I quit, it wasn't a plan, but it was in my gut. So I, I quit. And then I remember complaining like, I mean, I remember sitting there going, I need an attitude adjustment because I was complaining about a 5 a.m. spin class right after that about being tired. And I said, I need to get on a plane. I'm going to do what I created, which is travel therapy. And that, it's a very long answer, um, but hopefully it'll bring inspiration to people who are listening. I started these travel therapy segments because travel was my therapy. I had two therapies when I did crime and war. Travel, when I could, where I could go and disconnect. I have two gears. I'm a one or a 10. I have no middle. Um, yes, I'm, I'm sure I need therapy for that. Um, but so when I'm a zero, I can go to a spa, I can drink my, you know, mimosas and not talk to anyone for 10 days and be super happy about it. And so I would always replenish through meeting new people and hearing their stories and just absorbing different cultures and people. I loved it so much. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to, I want to do something that empowers people. Like my mom said, I'd go to a cocktail party, Kaya, and no one wanted to talk to me. What are you doing? Well, I'm working on this mass murderer where there were seven children. I'm like, no, no, stop. But no, please go talk about something a little. No. And my life was, I woke up every day going after the darkest times and focusing on the darkest, most heinous things that there were to focus on. That was my whole life. And I said, I'm a smart woman. I love what I do. And journalism was shifting. It was that time where all of a sudden it became infotainment. And all of a sudden, the women were gorgeous. We were always told, you know, you had to cut your hair and don't wear earrings that dangled or anything bright because it's not about you. It's about the news. Be impartial. Don't give your opinion. And it was at that time where everyone's giving their opinion. The women were getting boob jobs. You know, I'm just like, whoa, whoa, this isn't the kind of journalism that I signed up for. So it was a perfect transition to go cover travel. And I started doing that. And it was actually when I was doing my travel therapy show, I moved to New York. So I thought, where, do you, where does somebody start over? Because the problem was people that knew me knew me as a hard news, hardcore reporter. How am I going to be a feature reporter? I used to beg my TV station, please let me go on. Please let me go on the morning news and, and anchor that newscast. They're like, no, you're not the morning fluffy girl. You're the war correspondent girl. You're the murder girl. And so now I thought, okay, I got to reinvent myself. So literally moved to New York with just a carry-on suitcase, didn't know soul. Stole my car so I could get into an apartment. And of course, it was 2008, right before the crash of 2008. Terrible timing. Terrible. I have the worst timing. And it was when I started doing the traveling and the shows, there was a two-week period I couldn't travel. And that's when I... The other therapy, I said there were two. One was travel and one was watching those fluffy, little, happy, romantic comedies. That was my other escape. And it was during the holidays. I've always loved Hallmark and Lifetime Christmas movies. It was, you know, that was a family tradition to watch them. Talk about the ultimate feel good escape where you're guaranteed a happy ending. And I said, I'm going to write one. And so it was during a time after I couldn't travel for two weeks, I wrote one and that started the whole journey. So that's the longest, I promise you the other questions will uh, not get long answers, but it is, you know, people, when I speak about it, they say they're inspired meaning, you know, I wasn't 20 years old when I broke into writing my first movie. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a manager. I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. But I had the tenacity and I had stories to tell. And I had a love for storytelling. So you could be sitting at home, whether you're a screenwriter, a TV writer, or someone that's aspiring to be, and know that you can come from anywhere and do this job. We all have a story. You just have to be passionate about it. And that's why I love, you know, your podcast and everything you do at the Entertainment Business School. 
because it's so important to inspire and have those tools to know you can do it and have people in your corner that, you know, who you surround yourself matters. I didn't have a cheerleading squad. I'll admit it. My family was always like, yeah, she can do anything. I'm an only child, but they never discouraged me. They just believed I could almost to a fault, which sometimes you wanted a little more sympathy when things went wrong. They're like, you'll be fine. You know, you'll be fine. But I just had to kind of go it alone. And that's why, you know, now I try to surround myself by good people and good voices and keep out the noise because in Hollywood, we all know there's a lot of noise. (laughs) It's really true. It's really true. I have so many questions for you. I want to go back just for a moment into a little bit of your journey before you got into writing the movies and the books that you're writing now, which is how did you deal with the pain that you were encountering every day in delivering those stories. And also, I imagine in that era, you were also must have been dealing with sexism as you were so ambitious and rising through the ranks. Where, What was your inner resource to get through all of that? You know, I say stubbornness. <laughs> um, literally, we talk about diversity as fuel. That's all I had. So I thank you, first of all, for that question, because I love that question. And it's the two part. I want to answer the first part first because it was very life changing for me. And it's why I don't watch TV news now. And I, I'm a girl that had three TVs on at the same time. And, and it was my job to read every newspaper. And I do uh, read and get updates that way. But in terms of having the news on for a news cycle over and over and over, I'm actually triggered, very triggered by it and, and didn't know. And the way it was explained to me, which I'm, I'm going to put it, I actually have an, it's one of my screenplays, um, not one that's been produced, but it's always been in my head because it's, it's that moment you can't make up. I never analyzed at the time. I just knew every day I was on five, six, and 11 o'clock news. And I had to have news stories. And when you're the lead reporter, there's that pressure. So I'd come in every day. I wouldn't know. I'd, I'd pitch stories. That's why pitching to me in Hollywood is like, that's easy. I'm used to people saying no to me all the time. Whoopee, start again, find another story, you know, or I'm not precious about my writing. My job is to sell it. And then you tell me what you want. And then we work together. So producers are shocked as a writer that they're so easy to work with and, and you get it. And I'm like, it's a journalism background. I wasn't born that way. You I mean, I've said no my whole life. So I would go on these stories and I would come and I, you're so it's adrenaline. You're just go, 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 go. And you do it and you get it done. Then you're on again. Then you're on again. Then you go home. You barely, you know, sleep. I chose not to get married. I had amazing men in my life, you know, still have this amazing men, but it was everything. It was all consuming you know, about it. And I do it the next day. And it was like feeding that adrenaline. And also really the the belief that I was making a difference. I saw laws change. You know, I'd sit in trials of a serial rapist that I helped put behind bars who got out on a technicality and who was actually stalking me, you know, but it just fueled me to, we have to change the laws. This can't happen. And, you know, and I just, I remember a boss said to me once, you're so passionate about it. He goes, go home and have a life. Let it go. When there was something that went sideways or needed to be changed. And I'm like, I don't want to let it go. I want to fix it. Somebody's got to fix it, you know? And so, you know, that's probably not a hundred percent healthy, you know, in terms of work-life balance, but to your question of how I handled it, I didn't know how not to handle it. I was fine. I did it. I did it. Um, I remember, and we'll talk about the sexism, but what happened was, you know, when you're with police officers and you're with firefighters and you're with, you're in the war, And you're with people that have seen some of the saddest, most heart-wrenching things. And you ask them the same question and they'll say the same thing. And a therapist would say, I heard someone say it once so beautifully and simply, they said, some people can handle it. And they said, they can handle it 
for years because they compartmentalize. It's their job. This is what they're doing. It's a switch they turn off and they can do it. And some people could do it a week and they absolutely can't. And so it depends. You never know. So what happened with me when I got back from Afghanistan, so my career is going on 15, 16 years, and that's all I ever wanted and picked when I was 10. And when that snap happened and I couldn't go back to Afghanistan, I was so upset about it. You know, I wanted to go back. I wanted to be in it again and, and do more stories. And I said, I'll go cover spas because I had started writing on the side, you know, little writing stories when I traveled. Because again, you know, I love that. It was kind of like a therapy for me, which is why I picked travel therapy, you know, because they, it made sense to me. And when I left, though, all of a sudden, the news would be on. And I was like, mm, no, don't have time. I live that world. So I went to my first spa to cover for travel therapy and it was in Arizona and um, they have a beautiful indigenous program. And one of the people was a healer. And this was a part that would be in a movie, I think would be fabulous. Type A, you know, Q type A times 10 reporter that just wants to go get her story and get the hell out of it. You know, and he's like, lay down and he has feathers and he's flapping his arms around and he's chanting and I'm laying on the, the massage table, like spitting out feathers literally going oh dear lord have mercy and he was some chief that was supposed to be this healer and he's world renowned and i'm just like okay fantastic and i respected him but i just wanted to go i had a very busy schedule so you send me to a spa and i'm over scheduled so at the end though he says to me that he hears voices and i'm mm, i'm sure you do you know and i'm just laying there like literally with my phone next to me in the massage bed face down looking at my blackberry at the time you know, keep looking at it like can i go yet can i go yet and how long is this going to be? And I'm like, where's the massage part of this whole thing? You know, I mean, what is this guy flapping around with incense and stuff? So finally, you know, I sit up and he, I said, I really got to go. This is fun. Fabulous. And he said, um, well, I just want you to know, um, he says, do you have, there's some voices that are speaking to you. And I do believe I am open to those kind of things. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm creative, so I'm open. I don't know if I personally would ever think, put myself in that position, but I, I'm not a naysayer. So I just said, I thought he Googled me. This will be, this is going to be good. You know, let's see what he knows about me. So I said, um, I go, oh, he goes, are, you know, I'd like to tell you about the voices. I'm like, sure, absolutely. And he's like, so you have children? And I'm like, no, I don't have any children. I'm thinking one strike against me. He goes like, okay, then you're a teacher. I'm like, no. So he picks other things, uh, a coach, you know, things that would deal with children. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. And, and I'm again, looking at my, you know, phone trying to get out of there. And he's like, oh, wait a minute. And he's like, uh, well, let me tell you what they're telling you. I Every time I say this, I get emotional. So I apologize if I get choked up, but obviously it impacted me. And he's like, they're all saying it's okay that you've told their stories and they thank you for it. And I had just done like a mass serial rapist story of small children that I had to listen in trials. And some didn't make it. Some of the kids didn't make it. And at the time I didn't I felt sick. I felt horrible listening to the pain every day, like you said, but I, it was my job and I felt I, I couldn't break down. But all of a sudden, it was like all of the pain that you're talking about, all of the years of pain and sadness just came open and tears just started coming down, you know? And he said, I think and he put his hand on me and he goes, I think you have PTSD. And I said, what's wrong with me? And he goes, I, I think you're experiencing PTSD. I said, I no, I wasn't in the war like that. I mean, yeah, there was a bombing, but no, real soldiers have PTSD. I don't. He goes, no, 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 not from the war. You have it from your years and years of trauma that you've covered. And the way he explained it is, in case anyone's listening that this resonates with, because I'm visual, where a lot of us creatives are, he said, imagine a curio cabinet with all the little drawers. And he goes, and you cover a crime one day, and you put it in the drawer and you shut it. And you cover another crime and you shut it. 
And you could do that your whole life. And some people could go years, very much like the therapist had said. But some people's cabinets are smaller and some are bigger. And then one day, you have something terrible happen, like I did in Afghanistan, and you go to put it in the drawer, and there's no drawers left, and all the drawers open. And that's where you're at. All the drawers are open. It's why you can't watch the news. It's why certain things trigger you. And it, it was it changed my life because it allowed me to understand what I did and blocked it for so long. And as you know, as a creative, I've been asked, of course, people see my background. You know, Lifetime is a perfect example. I write a Christmas movie for Lifetime and they knew my background. And you know, Lifetime, as I joke with them, they do a lot of dark and twisty, right? Women in Jeopardy and all of these stories. And they're like, hey, let's talk to you about doing some of that. And I'm like, nope. I'm only hiding in Christmas. I, I like my, the Today Show interviewed me and I, they talk about, are you okay writing Christmas? Because I did like four movies in 18 months. And I'm like, you know what? It's like a Christmas rabbit hole. And all of a sudden I'll pop my head up every once in a while, look at what's happening in the world and going, nope, going back down. Thank you very much. Now in those years, I've evolved more to where I'm now seeing my own healing um, that I do have experiences. I could be beneficial in a room talking with, uh, you know, if I was in a TV room, talking about police procedures, talking about behind the scenes of border patrol. I have that experience. And maybe my journey is to continue to share for more authentic storytelling and more inclusive storytelling. So I'm, I'm working through that to see where I don't have to just do Christmas. But when I started out, Christmas was like my Christmas movies and books were like my therapy. And so that's the, the two pronged answer of how and the one thing I learned and I wrote about it in one of my stories is, you know, when you block yourself out, whether it's a personal trauma, a family trauma, an accident, I thought I could just shut all that out. But as a creative, I can't just pick the door to shut out. So I've been dealing with some hard times during the pandemic with my my dad and I'm only child. And, you know, he is also an only child and being a caregiver. And you just, I blocked, tried to block so much of that pain out, but then it impacted my writing. It doesn't work that way, you know? So I encourage everyone out there, if you're struggling with your writing or you're blocked in your story, it might be something in your life you haven't dealt with. And you really have to deal with that and heal from that, and or at least acknowledge it so you can write authentically. And damn, is it hard? Let me just say, you know, it's hard. It's work. And I think that's why the Christmas movies, even though it was kind of like a whim, I'd always wanted to give back. I kind of felt a big responsibility. They had healed me on Christmas. They had made me happy, you know, during the hard times. They let me hide, you know, from what I didn't want to deal with. I thought I want to give one back. And if someone can do that, and that's what I hear from people. When they watch my movies, A Christmas Prince was a phenomenon for so many different reasons. And that's a story we can talk about more if you want, because that's that's a crazy story. But the people that have reached out from 12 years old all the way to 90 years old and how it impacted them and how they can heal. And it's why there's a reason it's a multi-billion dollar you know, industry Christmas and why more than 100 Christmas movies are coming out this year. And it's not just Hallmark Lifetime, right? We have everybody else jumping on the Christmas bandwagon. And they're doing it because it's profitable. Why is it profitable? It's because people need healing. The more trouble, look at what we're dealing with right now in the world and the atrocities, you know, we can that are unfathomable. Well, there are people that need escapism TV. It's why romantic comedies have come back. And it's why we're seeing, you know, a different kinds of uh, push of what people are, are gravitating towards, you know. So I think my job as a storyteller is the authentic and what's real and what I can write. But I also think if somebody comes to me now where three, four years ago, I would have immediately said no. I'm going to listen. And if there's a way I can contribute and I can, you know, use my storytelling and my background, I can't, 
I shouldn't hide it. I literally have told people, well, that was my other life. I don't talk about it. And I thought I could do that. Like that was another life. That Karen's different. This new Karen's really fun. And she writes romantic comedies and she's super, you know, cheerful and happy. I am. That's not a lie. Like cut flowers. You know, you have, we don't need to cut the flowers with you and all of your depth and everything that you've been through because the roots are just so fascinating. I mean, you use the word escapism, but the word I was thinking of the whole time you were talking was sanctuary. Yes, I love that. Is sanctuary, it's sanctuary for so many of us, and especially while the world is hard. We're looking for that in our media. We're looking for that in our stories. Where can I go to feel relieved from all the stress and burden that I'm carrying? And what characters could I go on a journey with? And what beautiful location could I go to? I know that you're big on the settings too for your stories. Absolutely. And you said it, that's actually such a beautiful word, sanctuary, because it really is. And I think all of us, no matter what we're dealing with, you don't have to be in a war zone. You could have your own war zone at home with your own family and finances and struggles that, you know, we've all gone through. You know, as a writer with the WGA, I think, you know, we were on strike almost five months and SAG-AFTRA at this taping, you know, is still on strike. I'm also a member of SAG-AFTRA. I'm on the, I'm not an actress, but I'm on the actor side, which was TV news when I uh, was in the union in Boston to NBC and still proud, you know, member of that. But I think of the trauma that the writers have gone through and the actors, the homes that have been lost, the, the, you know, the college funds for kids that have had to be taken. I mean, I lost my health insurance. You know, I haven't, you know, you don't get a paycheck for a year. You're saying, yeah, yeah, we're supposed to save. We're creatives. But, you know, this wasn't just five months. Six months before it was slow. It's going to be slow coming out of it. It's rough. But I, I try to think again of the positive that hopefully... This will make us even more empathetic and better storytellers and that we can use some of our pain to maybe find a way to help somebody else in the storytelling, whether we write escapism because it prompted that or whether we really dig in with characters that are real deep and authentic. Because sometimes watching those characters also can heal you. You don't have to have the perfect bubble of a Hallmark Christmas movie. Maybe watching someone else struggle in a more authentic way will empower you to maybe my life isn't so bad or I resonate with this character. And That's why it's such a blessing doing what we do. People say, are you a journalist? Are you an author? Are you a screenwriter? Who are you first? And that's hard. I just say I'm a storyteller. But I will say that when I write my screenplays and when I write like television, you know, working on TV pilots and things, uh, my friends will say, I'm smiling. I'm happiest because I write as fast as I talk. I see it visually from my years of television. I have that kind of pacing. I love collaboration. Being a feature writer is so lonely. I mean, you know, I'm like, this is not fun. I'm used to traveling the world and seeing people. So after my first movie, I made a promise that every time I got a movie, I'd go to a country for a month and immerse myself. So one of my movies was written in Portugal, a tiny little fishing village. Another one was written in another, a tiny town in Spain called Alpea. Same with my books. Talk about isolating. I'm like, I am not someone that likes to sit quietly. I used to live in a live truck in TV, meaning those live satellite bands that you see. And I would just go to wherever the crappy, horrible, horrific story was. I saw people every day. And then you throw the pandemic into it. So I came out of, this was awesome. I did four movies in 18 months and now I'm writing books. But I'm like, also lonely. And I lived in Manhattan, you know? So I'd make sure to go walk in the park or go to a cafe or be around people because I think, that's challenging. I'm not, and how do you do it, Kaya? Because I know you're a mom, you have a young son and and surfing is your sanctuary, is your escape. How do you balance all of that and and cut out the noise when you're trying to create? Wow. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I I love 
socializing. I really enjoy it. And I think most of my friends don't live geographically in my area. So I spent a lot of time on the phone, you know, walk the beach, make a call, you know, you got to drive somewhere to go get your car repaired. And I'm like, I got 30 minutes on the highway. I'm going to call Karen. You know, like, Hey, what's happening? How are you doing? So I think what pulls me out of my own isolation or loneliness is just the reminder to myself that everybody feels like I feel. And then it's my job to check in on them. Well, how are you doing? Tell me about you. What's happening? And I get to, you know, be reminded that we're all in this together. And especially now, I don't know why it is when we have so many more people on the planet than ever that we feel like lonelier than ever. And maybe we all have a bit of pandemic PTSD that we haven't necessarily worked through. I know for myself, I always worked in cafes. I would go to cafes. I love the noise. I love seeing people, help people watching. I love seeing the same faces, checking in on the waitress. How are you doing? How's your little dog? I mean, all those things. And after the pandemic, I lost my going out rhythm. You know, I lost my like, oh, go to the cafes. And I had a sense of like, ooh, but there'll be people around. And that... (laughs) you know we are we are traumatized all of a sudden people that we love and we draw our stories from we don't want to touch because we're afraid we're going to you know get a deadly disease i mean it's it's been so hard it's been healing for me to go to hawaii um i used to live there i used to live on maui um the islands for me are the place where i can take my shoes off and let my hair down and swim in the sea and i have ohana there i have friend deep friends um and family connection there and you go have a laugh, you know, with people that you love. And I I just kind of live for those moments. And in between, yeah, there are massive stretches of isolation, the laptop lifestyle, you know, where you get a little laptop loneliness. But then like, I know that you're like this too, your characters also kind of become your friends because you're exactly a journey with them. I mean, my son teases me because I cannot leave a character in peril, whether I'm writing or (laughs) something. He knows now that he could stay up later uh, past his bedtime if we're watching something together and a character's in peril. He's like, we can't in peril. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I love that about you. That's precious that's amazing and he's smart he's a smart kid he's like let's start this now and i'll probably get another hour before i have to go to bed <laughs> a born negotiator it's exhausting but he's very good at what he does one day when he is on opposing counsel somebody is just gonna go down and oh, <laughs> absolutely i mean he's brilliant and, and and he's blessed to be around creative parents i mean that's what it's so amazing my so my mom was a school teacher she was a middle school teacher and she blames me for that because she uh, had a high school job and got pregnant with me. And so by the time she could come back, there was only middle school. So she taught sixth, seventh, and eighth grade for 35 years, the little monsters, um, as she had said, um, at a challenging time. You know, kids are going through puberty and, you know, so many things. And my dad was originally also a high school teacher and then went on to do, you know, a lot of different things. But you know, no one in my world was Hollywood. But a funny, a funny part about it was, so remember I said when I was little, um, 10 or 11, I decided I want to be a journalist. So I grew up in Washington State. And I grew up in Everett. So if anyone knows the Boeing area, that's kind of, you know, where I grew up. And I remember, first of all, I hated the cold. And my grandparents, and I'm an only child on one, um, I'm an only child on one side, I'm an only grandchild. And my mom had one brother with a couple kids. So there was the grandparents and we all are from very modest means. 
And my grandma would stay home and my grandpa was a school bus mechanic, but she clipped coupons. And I am most like my grandma. When you meet my mom or dad, when I was growing up, they're like, nope, 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 you know? And they meet my grandma, who was a little battle axe and super adventuresome and amazing and wrote stories, lived to 104 on her own healthy. Like, you know, she said her secret I'll share was to keep moving mentally and physical physically. So she'd do a crossword puzzle every day. She read every day and she made sure to do her aerobics. She lived in a, a not assisted living, but a senior community where she was, she wrote the newspaper all the way to a hundred. And then she started, she didn't like the editor. So she quit writing for the newspaper. She had a little tiff with the editor at a hundred years old. Oh yeah. My grandma was a force, but they traveled. She'd clip coupons and travel. And one of her stories that inspired me was when you talk about like Hawaii and the happy places, they wanted, you know, they're from Washington state and they didn't have money. So they wanted to retire and, you know, six months of the year and go to warmer climate in Arizona. So they packed up the, you know, station wagon and drove down. And when they got to Arizona in Tucson, my grandma decided it was too expensive. So just keep going over that border to Mexico. Now, you know, this was in the seventies. They had, did not speak Spanish. They're both about five, four, little gray haired, you know, adorable little grandparents, no background, completely fearless. And they went to a town, my grandma had a little coupon, you know, or a cutout, not a coupon, but a cutout from the New York Times called San Miguel de Allende, which now is a very famous, you know, a lot of people, you know, from Texas go there and very well known. But she went there, loved it. They spent the winter. And then she decided that because it was in the New York Times, you know, they went back to Washington. She goes, too many people know about it. Let's go somewhere else in Mexico that nobody knows it'll be even cheaper. So it was all driven by money. So they ended up in a town called Alamos that a couple artists they had met in San Miguel had talked about this community out in the middle of nowhere, not on the coast or anything. So I think that kind of intrepid spirit. And then when she traveled, they'd go on those senior bus trips. They'd go, all of a sudden they're in Japan for like a couple hundred dollars. I'm like, how are you she doing this? She'd send me postcards. And the way that she'd send me postcards is every time I wrote a letter, she'd send me a postcard. And in Mexico, every time I wrote a letter, she'd send me a Christmas ornament. My birthday is also a week before Christmas. So she bribed me to write at, at like seven, eight years old. So meanwhile, I knew I wanted to be a reporter. And in Washington... It's birthday, because my son's birthday is a week before. December 19th? He's the 16th. Oh my gosh. That's, see, I knew I love that kid. I mean, I'm so sorry that you have a Sagittarius, though. We're a bit of a handful. (laughs) We are supposed to be the most talkative and the most uh, fearless and the most traveler. Like, we're the traveler, if you believe in all of that. But yeah, and so I I got the wonderlust of travel, I think, through my grandparents, you know, the bribery and all of that. And that's why I incorporated when I started travel therapy, been to 68 countries. I majored in broadcast journalism and sociology instead of political science at the time, that's what everybody in journalism, you know, was, I'm like, I don't want to cover politics. That's boring. I want to cover cultures and people. And I want that side. But the reason I bring that up is when I picked this college, there wasn't any place in Washington and I had been nowhere. And I thought I hadn't traveled anywhere. I I don't have any stories to tell. I need to go to the best. And one of the best was Cal State Fullerton in California. And the other one was Syracuse at the time, you know, which was really far away. I didn't know anybody, but long story short, I thought I was going to get a gymnastics scholarship and I blew out a knee. So that never happened. And I didn't apply for grants. My mom, we were poor, but my mom made just enough that I couldn't get the assistance, you know? So I was like, oh, so I went to my school counselor and he goes, you got two choices. You're senior in high school. You either got to move to California and go there so you can get residency for college. So you're in state and you pay a couple hundred instead of thousands, or you're going to have to graduate 
then go to LA, waitress for a year, and then go to college. Well, anyone that knows me knew there was no way I was waiting. So I found family through my counselor and moved in. They lived in Calabasas. And uh, almost everyone in my Calabasas high school was Hollywood, you know, the star's kids at the time. And that's when I got my first taste of what Hollywood was about. But they're all batshit crazy is what I was like writing home about. I'm like, what is wrong with this school? I remember um, in my school in Washington State, homecoming king and queen would be picked on. A lot of times they were the athletes, right? They were the sporty people. They were the ones that did stuff for the school. Well, and then they got up and spoke, you know, did their little spiel about why they should be picked. Oh, no. In Calabasas, they all got these glossy, famous Hollywood photographer came in and did glossy photos and they were on a wall and you voted by the photo. You know, I was, I was like, this school is crazy. And they all had Mercedes, you know, that they drove and oh my goodness. So that was my first look at Hollywood, but I never met anybody or knew anybody. And so even though I wanted to write movies, it was in my mind, that would be amazing. I thought if I'm a journalist, I'll be able to see the world and have stories to tell, then I can write movies and write books. And when I wrote my first movie, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a manager. I didn't know a soul in Hollywood. And so that's my other thing I put out there that don't think you have to be a legacy family or come from royalty or be a Nepo baby or not that there's anything wrong. I'm like, hey, if you have advantage, take it. Because take everything you can get in Hollywood because you're going to need it. But I am a story of you can do it, you know, just through tenacity and, and finding, your, finding your way forward, even if you are by yourself. Sometimes being an only child is a good thing. You know, I think maybe if I'd had a big, huge family, maybe I wouldn't have been so intrepid to go out on my own and forge ahead like I did. So I, I count my blessings, even the difficult times. I try to look at them as learning and blessings and literally fuel. You know, that's, that's how we keep going. Love that. Hey, let's talk about The Christmas Prince. I want to hear how that to be like from how'd you get the idea to how did it actually go to Netflix? Oh, that's such a fun. I love telling the story because it, it's my first. So it's my very first movie. And as I mentioned, I don't know anyone in Hollywood. So it's a perfect transition. So I had been doing my travel show and I couldn't travel. I, I, I don't share it very often only because I don't know how important it is to share. But some people, when I have said it resonated, I battle skin cancer, basal cell, but it's pesky as hell and it's invasive. So I have to go every three months and just, you know, make sure I'm taken care of. Well, this was the beginning of it. And I had a tiny dot in um, my chest and they ended up, I don't know, it was almost a hundred stitches. And they, they told me I couldn't move because they said the stitches, it's right that part of your chest that your bony part of your chest under your neck, you know, there's not a lot of skin, you know, to do that. So they said, basically telling me not to move is like laughable. I'm in Manhattan. I can't even go down my stairs. I can't leave my arm above my head to get a taxi. I can't walk in Manhattan. That's all you do. It was the holidays. And so I decided that I started researching. I I thought, I'm going to, I've always wanted to write a Christmas movie. I'm going to do it. And at the time, Hallmark was the only game in town. And this would have been 2007. Uh, You know, I think, yeah, is that right? No, it came out in 2006 to give a time frame. So I started watching and because I hadn't taken any kind of classes or anything like that, I just started studying. And so I watched four or five and I wrote down, this is when the act break is. This is when the near miss kiss is. You know, it's very formulatic. If anyone, you watch a couple, you know. And so it was like, okay, they have to meet in the first 10 minutes. They have to do this. So long story short, I studied as an investigative reporter. I got the books that you you all read. You know, I I put them on my um, Amazon. I have an Amazon store. I put my five favorite screenwriting books that taught me. I did any YouTube video I could find. I just studied the crap out of it. There were no scripts. And they're really hard even to this day to find a Hallmark script out there. There were no scripts, but I just studied, studied, read other scripts. 
And so I wrote, the first thing I wrote wasn't a Christmas Prince and it wasn't even Christmas because I thought, well, Christmas, it's November. I need to sell this. You know, I better write something else. So then I researched and we could talk about that at a different, that's a whole different probably podcast, but you know, how the, the tricky things that I did, but I started doing all of the, the things I thought, well, I got to reach out. So I originally reached out to Hallmark because that made sense to me. And I found the email and I sent my little letter. Didn't even know it was called a query letter. I just, you know, sent my letter and said, Hey, this is what I have. And they were like, Oh, this sounds great. It sounds similar to something we're doing. Uh, is this your real name? I don't see you on IMDb. Who is your agent? And then they, the next line was, and we don't make the movies. Um, the production companies do. And that's before Hallmark was making their own. So then I was like, what is she you know, and this was VP. This was someone pretty high up. So immediately, it's like, if you have a script, send it through your agent. And I'm like, oh, so I had my travel. Remember the travel therapy that I started? This is why I'm traveling. I had a book called Tra- Still Do Travel Therapy. Where do you need to go? So I called someone I hadn't talked to in years, that agent, a literary book agent, not film. said, can you send in my script? She's like, I don't know anything in Hollywood. Doesn't matter. Just need somebody besides me. You're an agent. It all sounds good. Just send it in. But by the time I reached back out to the contact at Hallmark, I never heard back from them. So that was a bummer because, you know, I wanted to make sure before you never send a script. Everyone knows, you know, without being specifically asked. So I'm like, oh, I can have my ag- this agent send it and crickets. So but the production company, I was like, ding, ding, ding. What is that? So I started researching, what is this IMDB that I'm not in, that I should be in? So I immediately decided, oh, oh, yeah, I see. I, I don't have any movies. Well, how am I supposed to be in it when I don't have any? But guess what? I had documentaries. I'd been on TV. I'd been interviewed by all this stuff. And I saw that it wasn't just movies. I'm like, I can go on IMDb. So I put my documentary, my hour documentary that won an Emmy, my half hour, my Bosnia documentary, my Afghanistan documentary. My travel therapy show was on ABC. It was on Good Morning America, Rachel Ray at the time, you know, live with Kelly and whatever host it was at the time, you know? And so I'm like, those are, those are my TV series. So I did all that. So I had IMDb now. I felt pretty good about that. I'm like, all right, I put a bio up. I'm like, awesome. And I did all the research and, and I started looking at Christmas and I found producers that made the movies there. I could also tell there's certain levels of Hallmark. Now I know a budget. And and you could also just see a certain level. Some of them were so, let's just say, they weren't exactly the same way I would write. And then some of them were pretty elevated for mm-hmm. in comparison. So I narrowed down the ones that I liked. I found the producers. I start reaching out. And just like everyone says, yes, it was cold emailing and cold, all of that. And some, most didn't respond. Some said, um, what did somebody say? Oh, yeah, we don't take unsolicited. Yeah, whatever. Remember, like, none of that's going to scare me away because... Or else I wouldn't be a screenwriter. Nobody would be a screenwriter. I don't have an agent and manager. No agent and manager is going to take you until you have some credits. So how do you get credits? You got to be fearless. Door shuts. You jump through a window. Respectful. Don't stalk people. But it's stalked in terms of research. I researched everybody and tried to find a connection. So when I reached out, it was authentic because I I want them to do my movie. I'm not begging. They need a movie. They need me. So who do I want to work with? Who do I want to sit down at the Thanksgiving table with? And so... You know, I I was researching, I was still in the level of researching people I liked. And there was a movie I just saw that was elevated and it was shot in Romania. And of course, being the travel bug that I am, it wasn't shot like all the others, you know, like, ooh, I like this. And it was good. It was really good. And so I reached out to that producer and it bounced. I didn't get anything. So I was pretty tenacious about it. I kept Googling and I found his Gmail, you know, like from some college. (laughs) I thought, oh, let's try that. And I'll never forget the email I got back because I'm shocked. Somebody, you know, a couple of people had written back, but this guy, you know, after I tried so hard and he said, 
don't something to the effect of it was, you know, obviously on his phone. Don't know how, don't know exactly how this got to me. Um, but, and what I said is, hi, I'm a three-time Emmy award-winning writer. This is what I have. I put the log line, I mean, title and log line. That was it because I figured they were busy, you know, and a spec script, which is, I tell people, which was that now I know ding, 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 gold. If you have a spec script, everyone will talk to you. Even when they say they won't, they will. If there's any chance it can be something they can buy it for free and didn't have to pay you to write it, they're going to look at it. If you, you know, at risk percent it right and do all the tips that, you know, what Kaya teaches in her entertainment business school, because she teaches you exactly the tips that I'm telling you about. And Charlie, so anyway, she's been in the program with me. I remember yes. when you applied, yes. I was like, she's got so much experience. What does she need me for? But no, you've been a core part of our wolf pack and you always contribute so much value. And I, it was, I was really touched that you learned stuff as well from being in the school. So yeah, thanks for reminding everybody. Oh, well, let me tell you what I learned and I would tell everybody. I'll be quick and get back to the Christmas prints, I promise. But when Kaya said that, because she interviews everyone, she's very careful about who she curates and lets in because it is a family. We have each other's back and it's very intensive. You're going to work and you need to be intentional about it. And I, she said, wait, you've done movies. You, you're already kind of broken in. And I said, yes, but I did four movies in 18 months. I didn't have a manager and agent. Um, I, I feel confident in certain areas. I don't know the business side. Nobody's taught me. And you're in the WGA at that point. Yes. And I was in the WGA. I mean, I am in the WGA, but I had just gotten into the WGA in 2019, right before things you know, shut down with the pandemic, my fourth movie, which is a whole other thing that I, everyone get in the WGA as fast as you possibly can by hell or high water, because you need to be, you need that protection. I got tired of spending more on legal than I was making on my movies, you know, and just that battle of what it is and business affairs. But I knew I could learn from Kaya and her syllabus. Plus as a human, when, you interviewed me and we kind of interviewed each other. You were so open and caring and you came from the right place, which is what I came from. You want to help people. I do podcasts like this. I want to help people. I want to share. I overshare. I'm not, I don't, this isn't my ego. I'm hoping that if there's one kernel that you get, oh, wow, she didn't come from a lot of money. She didn't know Hollywood. She didn't have an agent. If that inspires you, that's why I share all of these stories. And Kaya, you're that way in the class. So it was invaluable to me. It, it, it changed my life. It was during a very difficult time where I, we talked about the isolation and you, you create a wolf pack. We're still all alums. We're still supporting. I just read Fred, a brilliant, brilliant student that's at NYU finishing uh, film school. And I'm probably going to say his last name right. Seto, S-E-T-O. He's genius, you guys. If, if he knocks on your door, if there's anybody out there listening, producers, I just read his TV pilot last night to give him notes before he's applying for fellowships. That's what we do. You know, and we do these morning howls that I host because I believe in writing before the world gets in the way. Everyone at 5 a.m. pops in and says what they're going to do and comes back at 7. So it's been, it's changed my life. And so when you asked me to do this podcast, I would do anything for you and the school. I think you're brilliant and anyone would be very lucky. And I learned so much. So even if you're out there going, well, you know, I've already done it. You're going to learn. If you're a human and you're open and the day you stop thinking you're going to learn is the day you're not going to be a creative anymore. So you absolutely, you know, need to learn on that. And to that note, some of these things I automatically did just because remember, I was a reporter. So I had to get people to talk to me every day. So this Hollywood thing wasn't going to be, I got a piece in the New Yorker. I was never in print before. And I have a talk of the town in the New Yorker. I did the same thing to David Resnick. I, I Googled, found an editor, didn't know he was the editor. Sorry, David. But just emailed, hey, this is what I got. You interested? You know, I kind of, it's just, call me stupid maybe, but I, it, it's kind of good not to know how big somebody is because you can be fearless. But even if I knew who he was, they can only say no, you know, and then you move on. So 
this guy was like, don't know how, you know, so I'm back to, he, he got my email. He goes, I'm getting on a plane. Don't know how I got this, but this is exactly what we do. Send me the script, CCing my assistant. And so, um, and, and I'll take a look. So I was like, okay, you know, so I send the script and it was over a weekend. He got back to me right away. I love the script. My wife loves the script. Aww. We want this one. He's like, we want this one. But, and I had complimented him because he had a royal Christmas story on Hallmark. And I had said, I saw that you shot in Romania. I saw this, I blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, everyone knows, I know if someone reaches out and, and personalizes it to me and compliments me, or even says they don't love something and it's a valid story, uh, they spent the time, you know, which is what you teach in the school and what I think every human should know. Don't ever blind email someone asking for something. There's got to be a connection. And he obviously knew that I had spent the time. So what he said is he goes, yeah, yeah, I want that one. He kind of like was like, whatever, I want that one. But do you have anything royal? I'm talking to Hallmark today. I need a royal for I do one every year. And if what does any good screenwriter do? Of course, I have nothing royal. But I was like, yes, I can do royal. And he was like, great. Look at the titles because there's like 400 of them. Don't pick one of those. And let's talk after the new year because it's right at Christmas. So I said, okay. So I thought about it and it's right what you know. And on my travel show, I had been invited with British tourism to the Isle of Anglesey in Wales. It's where Prince William and Kate lived when he was in the Royal Air Force. They had now moved to London. And so the tourism in Wales wanted to say, hey, walk in the footsteps of royalty. This is where Kate shop. This is where Will and Kate walk the dog on the beach because Americans, we all love that stuff, right? So I'm there with British tourism. I'm a guest. Travel therapy is about picking trips based on what you're going through in life. So there are these inspiring, empowering travel segments, very positive, all about uplifting, you know, feel good. I say it was like back in the day, it was like Oprah and the Travel Channel, you know, mixed together, you know, that kind of real positive energy. And so um, I'm, I'm there with tourism and their tourism's taking me to the bar where Will, Prince William loves his hamburger or to the beach. No one would talk to me. They, the locals were like, no, we don't know. We've never seen him. No, no. And tourism's like, no, no, we know. And they just wouldn't. And I remember sitting at the bar that night going, okay, I'm trying to do like a couple pieces for ABC. That's that time I was doing a travel show with them as well. And I'm like, this is going to be challenging, you know, but I respected it. And I talked to the bartender. I, I get it. The way they've been treated with paparazzi, how horrible. And this was, again, this was, gosh, seven, eight years ago, way before everything that, you know, happened now. Um, of course, you know, Prince Harry was not married to Meghan at that time, and, you know, all of that. And so I just thought, I, I really respect it. So I don't know if I talked to him about it or how, but the next day he goes, we'll come down for breakfast. And three of the townspeople were there. And they listened to me and they shared. And so I got my story. They trusted me because I said, I don't blame them. I told the tourism people, they're protecting them. I appreciate that. You know, I don't think you should bring people here. Maybe this is a place they want to come. And, you know, so long and short, the story worked out great. So now flash forward, I don't know, a year and a half. And I have a producer saying, do you have a royal story? So Christmas Prince was inspired loosely by my story. But I, I made the Christmas Prince was Prince Harry and Prince William. But I was thinking about the naughty Playboy Prince, obviously, thinking of Prince Harry in his younger years. And Prince William living there, kind of a combination like we do, composite characters, and a journalist that sent, you know, undercover to get the scoop. And the reason I did that is because there was a lot of times I had management that wanted me to get those horrible stories. And when there wasn't a horrible story and I call back like, oh, it didn't turn out, we'll find something, make something, we need it. And I would never lie or cheat. I mean, obviously you would get caught. I'm around police and stuff. But there was that pressure I had to get a story, whether it was there or not. And I never liked that, obviously. And I fought it and I quit places. You know, I, I left places that did that. 
So it's in my mind of the boss, and it's not a spoiler alert for Christmas Prince, but when she gets there and maybe he's not as crappy as everyone thinks, they want a story. They want the dessert. So I, that's how I wrote A Christmas Prince. It was supposed to go to Hallmark because Hallmark was who was making them at the time. I did notes. I did all of that. You know, the contracts of Hallmark, you know, we're all set to go. And then I got a call in November of it was 2000, you know, seven. I mean, 2000, yeah, seven. Um, somebody said, you know that your movie is airing on Netflix. And I'm like, no, you know, no, it's not. It's on Hallmark. And I hadn't heard. Hallmark is, that's very normal. You don't know. It's very confidential and hush-hush. So when I did have a Hallmark movie, you don't know when it's airing. You don't know the dates. You know, the directors call and say, do you know actors call? Like, I just wrote it. Y'all made it. I, You guys should know. So, yeah. So it ended up on Netflix. And told, wait, wait. You were told by the production company that Hallmark was the buyer? Yeah, that's where it was. That's where it was going. That was the budget. That was the way, you know, how you're paid. You know, I, this was, I was non-WGA. It was my very first movie. So the goal was Hallmark. This is about them, what they pay. Um, I had, um, at that time, while I never had an agent, when this guy, um, this production company wanted to buy two because he wanted both movies. Right. I needed to find somebody. So remember all the, I had reached out to agents and managers, but, you know, n- nobody ever wrote back. But there was one guy in Canada, a really nice guy, he had written, at least wrote me back and said, well, I, I rep Canadians, but good luck on your journey, you know, and all of that. And it sounds like you have a great, a fascinating background. You'd probably be great in a room and television, you know, because he liked my journalism background. And most of these Hallmark movies were being shot in Canada. So I wanted it. I wanted a Canadian agent because that's where all the production companies were that were making them. So I call him back and because I'm a salesperson, I had to sell every day in TV news. Never. Somebody said that to me. Well, I'm not sales. They go, you sold a story every day for 15 years in TV news. You are a salesperson. And I called this guy and goes, look, I got one for sure, potentially two. You want a free commission? I got the deal. I need someone to go over this contract. And he goes, why me? He goes, I'm Canadian and I rip Canadians. And I remember saying to him, and he thought I was hilarious because he was kind of, you know, it's pretty serious like he would be. And I said, you cannot discriminate against my poor little script. It does not have a nationality, you know, and it needs representation so I know what I'm doing in Hollywood. And he just kind of, cause he was so serious. And then he just kind of laughed. He goes, oh, wow. Okay. Let me talk to my partner. Cause he'd never repped an American. I go again, this script does not have a nationality. So anyway, he took it on his, you know, he had lawyers within. So everything was lawyered. Everything was fabulous, but it was a big, big surprise when it ended up on Netflix. And I remember when I, you know, called him and found out and I was like, wait, what? Cause Netflix had not made an original Christmas movie. Ever. So my movie that was written as a Hallmark movie with a very Hallmark tone and vibe is now going to be on Netflix airing within weeks or a week, I think it was. And that was shocking. And my, to be honest, I, I remember my initial was like, oh no, because I wanted Hallmark so bad. But then I was like, Netflix? Like this was a first. And then the irony was to fast forward, you know, we want another script, right? I write fast. So I wrote another script, even when this one was in development. And that one had a bigger cast, an ensemble Christmas camp. So that was for Netflix, a little edgier, a little sexier, you know, a little bit more character development. And that one ended up going to Hallmark. I'm like, see, wherever I decide to write, it's going to go somewhere else. But Christmas Prince was pivotal to my career. And the reason I did four movies in 18 months, Um, even though, to be honest, the people that bought my movies, they... Um, it wasn't because of the success of the Christmas Prince. They were already, you know, I had the the reason I sold that many is because I had that many. And I just said, yeah, I mean, something in development, go, go, go. And I, you know, the door opens for one second of your life where people say she has something in development, meaning there's a proven track record. They hadn't watched it yet. They didn't know if it was any good, 
for Christmas, you're cranking these puppies out. So I just had scripts, you know, and I just wanted to hit everybody. Lifetime, Walmart, Netflix, let's go, you know? And so I just, it, everything moved so fast and furious. But what I realized is the legal side of it, the business affairs side of it. And then I find out these are normal. You know, you get your deal memo and all your points and everything's, yeah, let's go. And we'll get you the long form, but we got to start shooting. They shoot these things in 16 days. And you get the long form and the deal points aren't there, whether it's just fast carelessness or, you know, nefarious who knows? I won't say. I can't. I have no idea. But I'm, I think I'm an investigative background. So I'm the one going, oh, no, no, no. That point that we talked about, that we agreed on, that needs to go back in. <laughs> and one of those points was that I could write the novel, that I could keep the book rights. And that's what transitioned because after Christmas camp started being made and it was being shot in um, upstate New York in July, a lot of things had to be cut. And I understood that. And so it was going to go through a ton of changes. I love that story. And they say, if you're precious about a story, do not be a screenwriter because it's just not your story. You sell it and it becomes everyone's. They said, be a novelist. So I'm like, oh, so that book, I decided to, I mean, when I sold my second movie and ever since I've kept book rights because then if I'm precious about the script, I'm cool. You take it. It's your script now. You do it. You all do it. And hopefully I stay on it. To, you know, I've been blessed that I stay on it to finish stuff, but that doesn't always happen. A lot of writers are replaced. And I can't tell you how many darlings I've had to kill. That's what we say in the industry, right? Where you have to cut things. But I don't care anymore because I can write the book and I can have my version. So Every Day is Christmas that just came out is actually the novel from my Lifetime Christmas movie that came out 2018. And it was really healing. And I wrote it during the strike because, you know, we were on strike and I had all these movies ready to go. And I had a new TV pilot. I was so excited, like so many of us writers. And everything came to a standstill. And I just felt just gutted. And I thought, wait, if I write a novel based on my movie, I'm still living in the world. I have my screenplay next to me. You know, I'm seeing Tony Braxton, Michael J. White, Gloria Rubin. I'm seeing my characters. I'm I'm so excited. You know, I have the audio book, you know, all of it. It's like, oh, that was the other thing. I was with Harper Collins. So when Christmas camp, you know, I got the Hallmark movie, I immediately tried to get a publishing deal. I got Harper Collins for like three books. I had to write a movie and a novel in four months you know, and, and not had never had written a novel. So now I'm down the Christmas rabbit hole of Christmas movies, other rom-coms too. I actually just sent out one yesterday, talked to a producer that I connected with over Christmas. You know, the Christmas genre is very small little world. They are the same producers, the same, just like you see the same actors. Well, it's the same producers, the same production companies, because it, this is my guess. I can't speak for Hallmark, you know, Lifetime, you know, and what have you, but what I've personally seen is you get people you trust. You got to crank this stuff out. It's fast and furious. The production companies are the same. You know, there's a three or four that do the majority of these. And once you have people that you like, you stick with them. I would too, you know? And so that's the world. And you know, Kai, in the class, I tell everyone listening, if you're looking to break in features, I would highly, highly recommend Christmas because they're buying a hundred of them, guys. Where else are you going to be able to sell something? And it's great if you can get it to, you know, be a signatory company and get it in the WGA, those residuals, right? You know, they repeat those things over and over. So I only had my last one. I wish I had residuals for A Christmas Prince. Um, that would have been sweet because that went on to have two sequels. I did not stay on the sequels because as soon as I sold Christmas Prince, I sold Christmas Camp, the Hallmark movie, the Lifetime movie, Every Day is Christmas, and a novel. So I actually had three movies I had to do in a year. And I had to make a choice. Do I stay on a franchise, you know, or do I get two new networks and a publishing deal? 
So I never regretted that decision. They did just fine without me for the two sequels that they did. And my name's still on it as characters created by, you know, and, and of course then Prince Harry gets married. So when it was Royal Wedding and then Royal Baby, you know, a lot of people, and I'm not going to say I had, I had done an outline for Royal Wedding, Royal Baby. Obviously I was paying attention to what was happening in the world. I have a TV pilot right now. That's a Royal TV pilot that I'm about to take out that also is bringing in a lot of what's happening. You know, it's kind of like Shit's Creek meets Succession type of situation. Um, so working on that, I think it's my journalist in me. I like to pull from real life things that, you know, make it timely and twists and fun. But that is the story of the Christmas Prince. And to this day, I'm so blessed. I mean, I remember when it came out, the reason I believe it blew up, romantic comedies hadn't really taken off yet. And when people saw on Netflix, they were like a very young generation were like, what is this cheesy, crazy, silly crap? They've never seen those Hallmark movies, but I like it because it's people would say it's so bad. It's good. I'm poking my eyes out, but I watched it. And then Netflix did something pretty genius and it ended up being on every talk show. They put out their own tweet and don't quote me on the number, but Netflix put out a tweet. It was like to the 65 people who have watched a Christmas Prince every day for the last 18 days who hurt you. And I just, and it went crazy viral. So they're talking about it on The View, Stephen Colbert, look it up, Christmas Prince. He does like a six minute monologue on a Christmas Prince. It just blew up. You know, Netflix is picking on its own movie. I mean, it's just so, it's so crazy. It became a parody, you know, because of course some things got changed that, you know, I wasn't involved in, you know. Um, and it's just, it's like they took all these different Christmas tropes and threw it in at the end. Well, we got to make a movie at Netflix about it. But I'm so proud. I'm, I, you know, there's always adversity. There's always, you know, challenges, especially your first couple of movies. But I learned from it. And, you know, I learned now I can give advice what to do, what not to do. And, you know, the decisions you make to be careful with and things like that. But I'm blessed if it hadn't been a Christmas Prince. And if it hadn't, I believe if it had been a perfectly written for Netflix now type of Christmas movies, it would have never gotten the attention it would have, you know, it got the attention because it was so this sweet little movie that no one was used to on a Netflix platform and corny and crazy. I mean, that movie is funny. I mean, when it's not supposed to be, there are areas that are just funny. So I encourage everyone to watch it. I'm sure almost everywhere I go, people will go, I know that movie. And they, I'm so blessed. They was, I think it was Good Housekeeping and Vulture. They do every year a top 10 classic movies. I'm up there with It's a Wonderful Life. You know, I'm up there with the elf. I'm like, I've become a classic. So yay. People say, are you upset when they say it's cheesy? I'm like, no, I just said, watch it. Thank you very much. I do not get residuals for it, but I say watch it because I hope it brings people joy. (laughs) I love that about the classic Christmas. It it takes us all back. um, And that's a piece of your spirit uh, that you bring forward in your writing. Before we go, I want you to talk about Color Your Christmas has just released this wonderful um, companion book to Every Day is Christmas. And it's a coloring book. And it is magical because it says on the cover, a magical Christmas coloring book. And it is transportive. I mean, in the best possible way, Karen, I feel like my best eight-year-old self, that would have, I mean, this is like a breast clutcher, right? You grab, it's my book, you know, it's just beautiful. The images and everything. I can't wait till I actually have time where I can pull out some colored pencils and spend time with these beautiful pictures. Oh, thank you. And and I'll be brief because I know, you know, we've talked a lot and we've gone long and hopefully 
uh, we still have our, our listeners here on that. But um, the reason I love sharing this, I, I personally have never done the adult coloring books that are very popular for stress and stress relief. But Color Your Christmas Dreams is 100% created out of the WGA strike. So I'm on strike and I'm broke. You know, I mean, seriously, you're using your savings and you're looking at money going, oh, money is flying out the door and there's no future of money coming in. So to me, that's broke. And I decide to do um, one of the things since my dad, I was caregiving, I couldn't be on the picket line. And my part of the WGA, they asked me to do social media because I love social media and being active. So I got on TikTok and I, you know, did a bunch. And that's one of the ways. But one of the trends on TikTok was you say, I want to make $10,000. I have $500. And I need to make $10,000 in the next three months. What do I do? And you know, and you give it this information, this AI program. And so when I did that, it came up with coloring book, you know, like a halt because it knew I did movies, right? AI knew I did movies and all of that. And so I started researching, but we go back a step. AI is probably still one of, is going to continue to be one of the most biggest threats to all creatives, whether you're a writer or a graphic artist, you know, an actor for sure. Um, and so... I always believe in the enemy, you know, keep it close. And so I wanted to research how powerful is this AI. I, I was using the writing tools to see that, but then art, because I do social media. And so I started playing around with it. And that's when I started seeing um, it a long way to go, for sure. And I talked to my graphic artist, and she did a beautiful job on Every Day is Christmas. There's a, a beautiful crystal heart ornament on it. It's from the movie that Tony Braxton puts on the tree. It's a pivotal moment. And so she recreated that for me. But, you know, cover artists are very expensive, as they should be. And I knew for a coloring book, I couldn't afford that. You know, I couldn't put that investment in. So it became 100% my AI experience. So everything from the cover to the inside art. And I, I studied, I worked with graphic artists, meaning they didn't do it, but I learned from them. And it comes to prompting. And I used a different program. Um, Mid-Journey is what most people would use. If you Google uh, coloring book AI, you'll see all these YouTube videos. But what I learned with Midjourney right away for anyone that's using it, it's free. It's fun to play around if you're making decks or, you know, things like that for your screenplays or social media. You're in a, um, the unpaid free version, you're in a, like a marketplace where what you put out there is open and anyone can use your prompt and use your art. And I, because I was going to publish it, I wanted to make sure it was proprietary and I knew the prompts were really key. So I use Leonardo and that's an AI program. And it's a little bit like gambling because you get these tokens for a certain amount of money. And every time you ask in a picture, so if I said a cover with magical this, this, it's all about the prompting. You can't just say a book cover. Um, you want people. And a lot of times I'd say like um, somebody's style, you'll, you'll say a style. Like you could say like a Thomas Kincaid. You're not taking Thomas Kincaid, please don't believe me because I'm very careful with all of that. But you're trying to get a feel of magical, mystical and do the right prompt. It took forever, Kaya. I thought this was going to be my weekend side hustle. This is going to be fun. To, kind of a, a, one of my talk about sanctuary and escape. And it took so much more because AI is so still a long way to go. But like I said, it, it's amazing. And so it took a lot. I'd maybe do 50, 60 prompts to get one of the pictures. It's 120 page coloring books. Amazing. And because I'm a writer, I wanted holiday quotes that were inspiring. I went down that rabbit hole, spent a couple of weeks curating the most magical that I felt. There's quotes from everyone from Ben Franklin, you know, to I think Oprah has a quote. You know, there's so many different inspiring quotes. It was for grownups. It was also inspired by my personal strike captain. Um, with the WJ because I felt bad that I couldn't be on the line. What can I do? And we were just kind of talking about stuff. And I said, well, you know, to relax and everything. I said, well, if you want a coloring book, I'll create a coloring book, you know? And so I put together a gift. 
with my books and Christmas and, you know, just as a thank you for her and everything she did. And so it was 100%. That was the thought. And with Christmas camp, when I take my Christmas camp Hallmark lady, then I did the books. Then I do these experienced Christmas camps at resorts all over. I sold out 400 room nights in a half hour. Um, the last one that I did, it put on pause for the pandemic. I'm bringing it back next year in a big way. We do programs all day. You stay and you feel like you're living in a Christmas movie. So we do everything from karaoke to, you know, Christmas cocktails to making appetizers, kind of so you can be your best self, take everything back for Christmas. So I thought, okay, color your Christmas dreams. People love coloring. And I was shocked that the younger generation, people in their early 20s, love it. They're obsessed with Christmas coloring books. And so I have that out. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere. It's on Barnes and Noble and you know, all of that. I just like the paper on Amazon the best. I'm you know gonna say. Um that my little insider tip. It is, and so, it is fabulous. And, and the other thing was this was my strike thing too. So the whole idea about the side hustle and make money, that didn't work because these are usually I'm looking, I'm holding it in my hand, I'm looking at it. I did the pricing like a good businesswoman would, and they're usually fifteen to eighteen dollars, you know, because it's has little, you know, it's one hundred and twenty pages. Um, well, I just thought nobody has any money. I need it under ten dollars. I need it like a Starbucks coffee. So I made it eight ninety five, which basically meant then there was no profit by the time I did printing and all of that. But I didn't care. I just thought, you know what? It's going to make people happy. It makes me happy. And so many people have reached out. It just came out that they really felt joy from it, and. We just, that's a good way to kind of wrap everything up. That's what this is all about. You know, that's why I write the movies. That's why, you know, I did the TV and try to bring that joy. And so, hey, if I'm going to do coloring books, people already want to know if I'm going to do a spring one and a fall one. I'm like, oh no, what have I done? But I enjoyed it. And I learned a lot about AI and I encourage everyone listening to, you know, we can all talk about the dangers, which absolutely it is. And that's why we're fighting so hard for fair deals for all of us and especially creatives. But you better learn it. You better know who your enemy is. You better know what you're up against, you know? And that's the that's the best thing that I can say. And I'm very careful. I talk to artists because I didn't want to upset the artist community that I support, that I pay for all my book covers and my graphic artists because they're important to me. Would you be offended? Are you upset that I'm using AI? And I showed them a couple pictures because and they I had to do a lot of work. Once you get the picture, it wasn't as easy as you think. It, it took a long time for each thing. I had to go in Photoshop, fix stuff. They said, no, because one of those pictures would take us two weeks. And they, every one of my artists said, and we're using it too, responsibly, but they're using it too. They're using it too. You know, when you, uh, like, Kaya, you're an author and you get three book covers, right? And you have to pick and then you go down a rabbit hole. You know how long it takes them to do those mock-ups of book covers? Well, now they're using AI to do it a little quicker to just give the vibe so they can get what your head's in. And then they'll go and they, you know, like I said, AI is not the slam dunk. You're going to have to still do a ton. If you see my coloring book, you guys, you'll notice there's some little ice skaters. There's a pond. It's magical. It's twinkle lights. It's little Christmas village. Most of the ice skaters have like three legs, two arms, you know, just wackadoodle stuff. Then you have to go in Photoshop and get rid of it and, you know, do all of this. So like I said, it's, but it's been a journey. I'm so grateful that during the strike, I wrote the novel. I did the coloring book. I used the five months to the best of my ability and have spec scripts ready to go, pilots ready to go. I just started talking to producers this last week and I just felt giddy. I felt like, you know, and they're like my friends, right? They're ones that I've done movies with that I couldn't talk to, you know, about business. And I just, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to get out there and create some great content with people. And one of these days, I know you asked me when you, um, when I was in your business school, well, what's one of your goals? And it was to find a manager or agent. But now you've heard my whole story. I do a lot. 
And so some manager, well, you know, should be like, wow, she does all of this. This is great. But it's really about being protective. Who's going to speak for me for the first time when they reach out to someone? And it's probably the most important relationship I'll ever have in my life as an agent or manager. So I'm being very careful and, and they should be too, because they have limited resources, especially now. And so I think that they are the most valuable because it's their job. I, and I would love to have the right fit. But in the meantime, I've sold four movies without it. I've done it before and I will keep going, you know, and that's the most important. So if you're out there thinking you need the manager and agent, don't get me wrong. It's an absolute blessing to have the right one. But like one of my friends said, the only thing worse than not having a manager and agent in Hollywood is having the wrong one. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my goal. My goal is to find, to add to my team. And I'm so grateful to you, Kaya, and the Entertainment Business School and the Wolfpack we've created because now it's my family and that's part of my team. You can only move forward. You know, I've, I've gone it alone for a long time and I know I've tapped out. I've done a lot by myself and I'm ready and excited to, you know, try to grow and do more with the help and bringing other people in. And thank you for being such a part of that. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Well, thanks for all you contribute to us and the 5 a.m. Writers Club. Uh, <laughs> yes, continue. Oh, so no, it's just fantastic. Uh, you bring a great sense of community and connection for all of us and all your fantastic information, including what you've shared today on the podcast. I wish you all the best in your continued journeys and uh, in storytelling, um, bringing your stories to screen. Karen, where can our listeners find you and follow you? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, my website is karenshaler.com and that's S-C-H-A-L-E-R.com. And please follow me on TikTok, which is super fun, which is my name, Karen Shaler. And that's also like on, on following on TikTok. Oh yeah. It's going to be so much. It's so much fun. I do a little, I do, I actually do walk and talk screenwriting tips. So somebody will ask me, how did you do a query letter or a tip? I just answer. I'm not looking pretty. I just walk in the morning and I just decided, well, I can walk or I can answer questions from people. So that's what I did. That was my contribution during the strike that I am continuing. And on X, otherwise known as Twitter, I'm also Karen Shaler. My Facebook is Karen Shaler Official. And then what did I... Oh, travel Instagram. It's travel therapy because of that travel therapy world of mine. And I'm working on a TV pilot that has... I'm working on three TV pilots that have travel components. So I'm super excited. And also a feature that has travel. I, I think the travel bug is back. I'm just ready to get out there and go, you know, and, and incorporate beautiful stories that escapism you talked about. But I would love to connect with all of you. I follow everyone back. So follow me. And I also, as Kaya said, perfect full circle, I do a ton of giveaways. Um, right now, oh, right now on Goodreads, I'm giving away 10 of those coloring books we talked about. I think you have till the 18th to put in for that. Remember, there's three, there's the free uh, Christmas camp guide on the website, karenshaler.com. And three of my books are free on Kindle Unlimited. So follow me there. And Kai, I'll give you my LinkedIn tree too, because it has, you know, more specifics of where people can follow, but I'd love it. I do this for, you know, to help and to try to give back. And I just, thanks for having me, Kai. It means a lot. And thanks for that connection today. Oh, you got it. Thanks for being here, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www. 
entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.